What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. My voice feels back. I'm Dan. You're back. You're back. Yeah, it's like 90%. I feel like if I push too hard, I would I would get weak, but close. Okay, well. Every day a little more. Okay, well, hi, Dan. I'm Lindsay. Hello, Lindsay. Hello. Uh, real quick, in honor of Mother's Day, we have oh. a bunch of new cool stuff in the Bad Magic merch. Oh, sorry. Dot com store. I thought you were about to say, like, you got me something so great. And we celebrate Smommy's Day for you, and we're very excited for that. I just thought you were going to announce some really cool present. I got the best way mommy too excited. Ever. Um, no, but in our store, uh, we have little creeps and peepers onesies for babies. Stop it. Scared to death shirts and sundresses for mamas. We have sundresses now. Come on. Some real cool designs. Very different from anything we've uh, done before at, uh, at badmagicmerch.com. Yeah, we're trying to branch out a little bit. That's right. And also at badmagicmerch.com, we have uh, tickets for sale for a new live Is We Dumb show. It's going to be the first. We did our first Scared to Death show. Mm-hmm. We're doing our first Is We Dumb, me and Joe Paisley, June 10th, uh, loopedlive.com. If you only listen to this show, you can see a very, very different side of our producer and a very different side of me. Very, like like literally a night and day difference. <laughs> we really let it loose. It's all comedy. Um, I would recommend listening to one of the regular shows. And if that's too much for you, the live show will be way too much for you. It's going to be extremely explicit. Yeah, I was just about to say, and like not kid-friendly. Oh, my God. Not in the least bit. Well, unless you, know, unless well, you, unless you let your kids roll with you know whatever kind of joking that yeah. uh, you let adults roll with. Yes. but Then let her rip. Oh, my God. Like a little four-year-old <laughs> in there. He's going to learn. Oh, four-year-old's going to learn some shit. I was just thinking about that age because that's like the the repeat age where they repeat, oh. <laughs> they repeat everything they Get hear. ready for some talks from your preschool, from <laughs> CPS possibly. Uh, badmagicmerch.com is where those tickets are. Uh, and then and then one more announcement. The okay, most important. Okay, what you got? This May, we here at Bad Magic Productions donating $13,800 to the Ocular Melanoma Foundation in honor of Alex Roach, a time sucker who was taken from his family at the tender age of only 33. His widow, uh, a fan of the shows we do here, Carmen asked us to donate in honor of her, quote, strong, talented, and amazing husband. She is amazing and strong and talented as well. That's what we're doing. It's also Melanoma Awareness Month. 
The Ocular Melanoma Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit, one of the leading research and patient support organizations focused on ocular melanoma eye cancer. To find out more, go to ocularmelanoma.org. Thank you so much to all of our Roberts and Annabelles on Patreon for uh, you know making this possible and allowing us to make such a difference. Such a that was a tough one. Whew, okay. Yeah, and I know because you were emailing back and forth with her. Yeah, it's heavy. Yeah, it's really heavy. They Very have heavy. A, they have a little boy, you know, and it's just, I mean, 33. Right, that's so young. He, so young. He got. You know, it's a very rare kind of cancer. He got it, and then it spread to his brain and his spine. It just it took him, and he fought tooth and nail. But mm. you know, sometimes it just you just can't. And so we've been sitting on this for a while. This happened several months ago, and Carmen and I were going back and forth about the appropriate time, and we decided this would be such a great month since it's melanoma awareness month yeah. so yeah just sending a lot of love her way i don't even know if she listens to this particular bad magic show but man it has rocked me yeah interesting episode to make that announcement on because i think this is the episode that to it, it definitely is for me proves more than anything else uh, that i've done that there is life on the other side that there is, we go on in some form. The the second story I'm going to tell today is ridiculous. Okay. Very intense, uh, more spooky than scary, and also just weirdly hopeful for me, who wants to someone who wants to find proof. Yeah. Of that, there is something that goes on. I don't know how else you explain what happened, other than a spirit came back. Uh, and, and, a, and indefinitely one spirit, someone spirit, not just a random spirit, yeah, who yeah. gave very specific information from the other side to help solve her own murder. Ooh, ooh, that is an interesting twist. It is very interesting. It was written up in the papers in the late 70s across the country. It kind of caught the nation by storm, just the story for a little while. And then, of course, you know, it's been many years and it's faded now. Right. I had never heard of it, but Wow. Okay. So that's one of my stories today. What, how many stories do you have today? I have two. Um, okay. I have a maybe sleep paralysis, but then yeah. at the end of the story, there's a specific detail that comes out that you're like, wait, was that sleep paralysis? Or did this person actually see something? I was, I'll get into it when we talk okay. about it, but it was very interesting to me. And then uh, for our first story, we're going to Columbia. And it's a it's a funky little story that has a few twists and turns of like, is this culty? Is this witchy? Like, yeah. what is happening here? Um, Interesting. It, it's a cool, cool story. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. We're going to have a really unique, I think, tone to today's show. I, I am into it. Uh, very much Unsolved Mysteries type vibe. Dun, um, dun, dun, dun. Did you ever watch the original Unsolved Mysteries? Oh, I, I couldn't handle it. Oh, I, I, you know it was one of my favorite shows growing up. Of that is, but like creep yeah. peeper. Yeah. That's it right there. Because, you know, that music would come on and I'd be like, oh, God. Yep. oh no, oh no. I would leave the room. I was so oh, panicked wow. by it. I just, Wait, I, I think his name was Robert Stack. I Joe, picture correct him. me if I'm wrong, but, but o- older guy um, was, a, you know, acted in a lot of stuff when he was younger. And I just love when he'd walk out with all the fog, just have very distinctive voice tonight on Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, it, it chills we, down my spine. I don't <laughs> like it. August 5th, 1984. A woman and her son are lost in the I got forest. It, I got it. I got it. I got it. Oh, so good. You know, I don't deal well with the unknown. Mm-hmm. Like we talk about it even in our sponsor ads and yeah. I'm talking about better help and whatnot. Like I'm somebody who needs tangibles. Yeah. I'm always spiraling out about like what if, what if, what if, what it is. A woman from Cleveland. She lives in Coeur d'Alene, is walking alone in the forest. Shut the fuck up. Like socks. <laughs> she likes socks and fluffy things. Okay, guys. A enough. spaceship comes Stop from it! across the forest. She can't 
defend herself. Stop it! <laughs> okay. Alien from Sock Planet. <laughs> Looking for socks. At least Joe's was funny. Yours was just me. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, okay. boy. Okay, well, I'm excited to talk about the... The spirit thing, because yes. in my mind, I all I just want to put this question out there because I'm afraid I'll forget it. I'm curious how exactly that story comes together oh, because I wonder, intense. I wonder if when you die, if your spirit can inhibit. I always think like you die and then like you come back as a new like a baby, but mm. can that spirit like inhibit inhabit yeah inhabit yeah someone what is inhibit oh to stop to yeah. like okay to inhabit someone. Who's already here? Do you know what I'm? Do you, yeah, I don't want to give anything away, but you're gonna I'm find gonna, out. I'm gonna your, make your, a note right now. Your question will be answered shortly. I'm gonna make a note. Uh, so the two stories I found, yeah, I, I, they both come from ep- old episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, uh, and, and this is rare for us. They both also involve true crime. Uh, the first one might be paranormal, definitely very, very creepy. A story about a woman being terrorized by something for or someone. For seven years. That's a long ass time. Oh my God. Threatening phone calls, attacks, broken windows, break-ins, so much more, and eventually a disturbing death. The second one certainly involves the paranormal. The first one might. And again, the best paranormal evidence uh, I've come across. A woman who seems to have definitely solved her own murder from beyond the grave. Okay. Um, don't normally include trigger warnings, but there, uh, this first story, there are some pretty graphic uh, sexual true crime details. Okay. So if, if, you, if you need to skip it. I only include this warning because this particular story is not the kind we normally tell here on Scared to Death. Is it just in the setup? No, no, it's kind of like midway through the story. Okay, so it's okay, hard so there's to, no way to just like uh, skip ahead a minute or so. Yeah, you'll, you should you'll, just maybe skip this. You'll story. know. You'll know. I can, I can give you a heads up. Uh, I won't if I forget to say the word like trigger or whatever. But it's it's, it's you know the first time uh, I believe first or second time I can't remember this, this woman's attacked. Okay, okay. Well, just um, I think a yeah. warning at the top, and you guys make your decisions. Exactly. I, I don't want you to ruin the flow of the show. Exactly. And pull us out of the story. Okay. Uh, I decided to include this tale in our in our collection of primary ghost tales because it's just so odd and disturbing Mm -hmm. enough so that it made me wonder could some element of the paranormal be at play here if so what kind of element would it be Mm -hmm. also decided to pick the story because uh, this story and the next story um, were unsettling enough that when one of the Unsolved Mysteries original series co-creators Terry Dunmuir was asked to name the 10 creepiest stories she had ever been a part of telling out of roughly 1300 stories she helped produce over the years these two stories were amongst those 10 Wow, wow. Okay, okay. And this first story was actually called on the show Scared to Death, so we had to tell it here. I mean, obviously, we were destined it was calling to. for us. A little bit of setup now, and then we're going to we're gonna get into it. Okay, I've want... got my fuzzy socks. Okay. I also, I ordered a decaf this morning, and I think they gave me regular, so I'm like a little... Woo-hoo. You're not too ding-ding. I'm trying really hard. And my hands are shaky. It makes me not feel well. Okay. Anyways, skull and crossbones. Woo, 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 woo. All right. <laughs> All right, you ready? I'm ready, Dan. Let's do it. Cynthia Cindy Elizabeth Hack James, long name, but she kind of changed her names over the years, uh, was born on June 12, 1944, in the little roughly 5,000-person town of Oliver, British Columbia. Not far from where we are, actually. Not far from the U.S. border with Washington State. And no one could have predicted how strange the final chapter of her life would be. The eldest of six children, she grew up a normal kid in a normal family, no trouble in school, no trouble at home. And then she made the practical decision to study nursing after she finished high school and she moved to Vancouver, a 400-kilometer, five-hour drive you know, to the west to the big city. 
There, when she was just 19, she quickly met and then married a psychiatrist named Roy Makepeace in 1965. Perfect last name. Perfect last name. Don't know if he was born with that or not, but it's on his obituary. Uh, a man nearly twice her age at 37 at the time. Okay. The two fell madly in love, and the year after getting married, Cindy graduated from nursing school in 1966, later became the administrator for a preschool with children with behavioral and emotional issues where she'd worked for many years. She would have no children of her own. Those children would be her kids. She seemed happy, fulfilled. She lived in, uh, in a nice home, and together, her and her husband made a more than comfortable living. The two remained married for 17 years before Cindy filed for divorce and separated from her husband in early 1982. And four months later, a series of very troubling incidents began that would last for seven disturbing years. Time now for the tale of the woman who may have murdered herself. It all started with some phone calls. Someone would call Cindy and stay silent for a few moments before the line went dead. She was bothered enough by the frequency of these phone calls to tell some friends and her parents. Then, shortly after they began, a male voice would come on the line and whisper threats. Without access to the police reports, we don't know exactly what the mystery caller told her, only that they were, quote, obscene and threatening. Supposedly, the same caller started harassing her ex-husband at this time as well, and, oh. he, and he left a voicemail on his answering machine that I listened to that just says, Cindy, dead meat. What? Soon. Yep. Fuck. Cindy called the police for the first time on October 12th, 1982 to report these threats. And the calls continued and were frequent enough that a few officers were actually at her house when some of them came in. The officers didn't hear the male voice, but they did hear silence on the line and they heard the caller hang up. What drew these officers to come to her house weren't these calls, but reports of a prowler on the property. The day after first reporting the calls to the police, Cindy reports a prowler for the first time on October 13th. She hears someone attempt to open the back door of the oh. house she's been renting for the past two and a half months. Two days later on the 15th, someone throws a rock through her kitchen, through her kitchen window, shattering it. Meanwhile, the calls continue. Things escalate even further four days later on October 19th when Cindy reports that someone has entered her home and slashed her pillow to ribbons. Oh my God. She discovered this only when she turned down her bedsheets. Responding officer Pat McBride suggests that her ex-husband, Roy Makepeace, could be responsible. Cindy emphatically denies this as a possibility as Makepeace was the one who urged her to phone the police about her pillowcase or pillow in the first place. That doesn't eliminate him. True. Two days later, Officer McBride goes above and beyond the call of duty and installs deadbolts on Cindy's doors. He also begins visiting her daily, and within days, the relationship turns romantic. Uh-huh, saw that coming. Little over a week later, on October 30th, a threatening note now shows up, assembled from cutout letters. It's found lying on Cindy's porch. McBride now actually moves in with her, ostensibly to protect her and also because, of course, they're dating. And it could be him. Could be him. Two weeks later, in mid-November, Cindy now finds a picture of a corpse, clipped from a book titled Malpractice Under the Windshield of Her Car. Adding to uh, how threatening this is, her phone lines are discovered as having been severed in five different places. And the police, not even the officer living with her, can't figure out who's responsible. On December 1st, Officer McBride moves out of her house at Cindy's request, but the two continue to date for a time, and he keeps his key to her house for a time. The following month, January 1983, the local phone company installs a tap on Cindy's phone to trace the harassing phone calls that are still coming in. Unfortunately, the calls are too brief to trace back to a specific address. 
All they can determine is that the calls are coming from somewhere in the Vancouver area. On January 4th, more disturbing pictures arrive in the mail. And Officer McBride finds another note made out of cutout letters on Cindy's lawn. The pictures are of corpses, knives, and women with their faces scratched out. (sighs) It's extremely troubling. The letters contain menacing words and phrases like mangled, pulp, and dead. Still, no one has any idea who is responsible for this. Then, three weeks later, on January 27th, things escalate yet again in this strange and disturbing case. Cindy is now found unconscious in her garage by a friend, Agnes Woodcock, who showed up to visit, knocking on the door and becoming concerned when Cindy didn't answer. Oh my gosh. Agnes walked around back and was shocked to find her friend Cindy crouched down, looking like she was trying to hide, like she was scared. Once she realized it was her friend, Cindy stood up, and that's when Agnes saw the nylon stocking tied around Cindy's neck. (gasps) That's when she saw the blood and called the police. Oh my god. Cindy tells the police she had answered a knock at her back door, and then someone had grabbed her. Someone she can't describe enough detail to lead to any suspects. A man, though. And she claims this man dragged her to the garage where a second man she also couldn't describe in any great detail was waiting. She tells the police that one of the men slashed her hand with a knife, then knotted a black stocking tightly around her neck, causing Cindy to pass out. When medical experts examine her, Cindy has over a dozen cuts made by a scalpel or some other sharp instrument uh, on her arms and legs. Cindy will also claim vague memories, and this is the part I warned about, I'm remembering now, this is extremely upsetting, of being raped with a knife. (gasps) The next month, February 1983, David Boyer Smith, a veteran officer now in charge of the investigation into her attack, believes that her ex-husband, Roy Makepeace, is responsible for everything. He becomes the prime suspect, the only suspect, uh, for who is terrorizing his ex-wife, Cindy. Boyer Smith also believes that Cindy is withholding information, so he arranges for her to take a polygraph exam. She fails it. Twice. She confesses that she recognized one of the men who attacked her in January, but refuses to name him for fear he will go after her family. Is she lying? We know now that polygraph tests are notoriously unreliable. Mm-hmm. If she is lying, why? About what? Cindy moves out of her rented home now, moves into the former home she owns and once shared with her ex-husband, who now moves out into a different home. Okay. Despite Officer Boyer Smith's suspicions, she doesn't appear afraid of her ex, and the two appear to have remained friends and to have, in fact, a very amicable relationship. Cindy won't stay in her old house for long, though. Moving out into a new place just a few months later after the mysterious harasser has found her again. Shortly after moving in, setting up a new phone with a new phone number, even having her car repainted to disguise it, the harassing calls return again, and she moves out just a few weeks later. Shortly after moving for the fourth time in just a year, she now visits Jakarta in Indonesia to see her brother get out of the country for a little while. Interestingly, her ex-husband pays for the trip. Uh, Things still appear extremely amicable between the two. While she's gone, more threatening letters arrive for her, this time at Blenheim House, the preschool for behaviorally challenged children where she's worked for years. Mm -hmm. Then, much more menacing than the letters, shortly after she returns from overseas from visiting her brother, a strangled cat is found in Cindy's garden. Oh, my. With a note attached that says, you're next. A few weeks later, someone destroys Cindy's garden. Who's doing this? Police still have no idea. The following month, November 1983, McBride finds another note on Cindy's porch, followed four days later by another strangled cat. This person is a fucking psychopath. McBride, this story's going to get so weird. McBride convinces Cindy to hire his friend, private investigator Ozzy Caban, after Cindy's phone lines are cut again. Two months later, 
on January 30th, 1984, Cindy is attacked for the second time. At 6 p.m., Cindy presses a panic button her private investigator Caban had installed in her home to alert him that she needed help immediately. He kicks in her door just 15 minutes later to find Cindy on the floor. A paring knife has been stabbed through her left hand with another threatening note underneath the hand pinned to the table. A black stocking has again been knotted tightly around her neck. She'd also appeared to have been struck in the head. And maybe most disturbing of all, there's a needle mark in her right arm, but no substance is found in her system. Oh, shit. Cindy claims she can't remember anything about the attack. Oh, no. There are still no clues, no strong suspects, other than some uh, are still wondering if her ex, Makepeace, is responsible for all of this. Or McBride. The uh, the suspicion is heightened about her ex shortly after this attack when Cindy tells the police that Makepeace threatened and even beat her when they were married and pledges to limit contact with him now. On Valentine's Day, 1984, Roy Makepeace, the psychiatrist, is brought into police headquarters, questioned for nearly six hours by police. Roy claims to be as baffled by the incidents as Cindy, but he does offer a new theory that Cindy's work with troubled children has invoked the anger of a local family with organized crime ties. Strange theory, yes, but with the details he gives authorities, they do actually look into it, but nothing will come of it. The following month, Cindy undergoes a third polygraph regarding all her claims, and this time she passes, further adding to the mystery of all of this. Over the summer of 1984, the harassment continues. The phone calls continue at both Cindy's home and her work. They've been going on for two years now. Her phone wires are cut yet again. More of her windows are broken. Cindy's now losing weight and withdrawing socially from friends and colleagues due to all the stress. Yeah, of course. Also that summer, Cindy calls P.I. Caban over to her house again finding after finding her back door partially open. Inside her home, Caban finds a sexually explicit birthday note and someone else's cigarette butts. Ugh. He also finds Cindy's small dog, Heidi, oh, no. tied to the kitchen table with the same type of string used to strangle the cats, not dead but beaten to the point of bruising. Oh, my God. Shortly after this, Cindy will find a third dead cat in her yard strangled like the first two. On July 3rd, 8.30 p.m., another troubling incident. Cindy notifies Investigator Caban that she'll be walking her dog Heidi at uh, at the local Dunbar Park. She was keeping him pretty in the loop as far as her daily activities at this point. Three and a half hours later, a frightened-looking Cindy knocks on a stranger's door and then collapses. Another black stocking knotted tightly around her neck. Holy shit. The third time now this has happened. The last thing she remembers is being stopped on the street by a bearded man and a blonde woman in a dark green van. The man asked her for directions. There are two needle marks on Cindy's arm, but no drugs in her system, at least none they can detect aside from prescribed antidepressants. Under questioning, she is confused and incoherent. Over the following few months, at her P.I. Caban's suggestion, Cindy undergoes hypnosis to help her recall details of her most recent abduction. Hypnotist Hal Booker is unable to recover any useful information during the first session, but in the second, she declares that she had once witnessed a double murder. She cannot or will not provide any details. I personally am not a fan of memories recovered while under hypnosis, as they've been proven incredibly unreliable over the years, but I have to include this as another interesting, weird detail in the trail of interesting, weird details the story is built out of. Where is all this heading? Law enforcement has still found no suspects, And unusually, some are beginning to think now that Cindy is somehow doing most of this herself and orchestrating the rest. 
By this point, all of Cindy's co-workers and supporters have been investigated, and Interpol has looked into Roy's background, her ex-husband, in addition to him being thoroughly investigated as a prime suspect by police. No charges have been filed. Police even secretly have staked out Cindy's house on numerous occasions for days at a time and found nothing pointing to who or what has been harassing Cindy. After a quiet few months, the menacing phone calls then return by the end of the year. Man. Following over six more months of these harassing phone calls, Cindy overdoses on sleeping pills, Mm. an apparent suicide attempt, on June 21st, 1985. She's found just in time to save her by a friend, taken to the hospital where she recovers, and then she is discharged into the care of her brother. Then a week later, her phone lines are cut again. The following month, the police stake out both her home and the home of her ex-husband, Roy. They observe no suspicious activity at either residence. In mid-July of 1985, Cindy reports yet another phone call to the police. However... This time, the call was recorded by the phone company, and the recording indicates uh, where the number came from, her own house. (gasps) Oh, no. Why would she do that? A new theory emerges that Cindy is behind most of what she had reported, but that she truly isn't aware of it. This theory is that she has dissociative identity disorder, Oh. known at the time as multiple personality disorder, and that one of her alternate personalities hidden from her primary personality is harassing her. Her ex-husband, the psychiatrist, is the main proponent of this theory. July 27th, Cindy now receives a cosmetic case full of rancid meat in the mail. Did she send it to herself? The police will never determine where it came from or who sent it. A week later, on August 5th, Cindy reports the first of three arsons that summer at her home. A basement window is found open, but there are no signs of forced entry after the first fire is reported. Police are suspicious that she set the fire. Mm -hmm. Her strange saga has now been going on for three years. Cindy reports two additional basement fires over the following two months and receives a total of $9,500 in insurance money. Mm -hmm. On December 1st, she moves for the fifth time since all this began. This time to the Vancouver suburb of Richmond, and 10 days later... Yet another attack is reported. This is crazy. Oh, yeah. This time, Cindy is found wandering around a pond near the university campus without shoes or a coat. After going missing during her lunch break from work, a black stocking yet again knotted around her throat. There's a needle mark on her arm again. Incoherent and confused, she's unable to remember anything about the incident, or so she says. Detective Halliday consults psychiatrist Anthony Marcus. Marcus renders the opinion that Cindy engineered this harassment herself. Police decline to press criminal mischief charges if Cindy agrees to enter therapy, which she does not do. Instead, she continues informal sessions with an unlicensed therapist who goes by Dr. Connolly. That's not a good idea. For the first time since the incidents began, Cindy is surrounded by more doubters than believers now. Her parents, Gabon, and a handful of close friends remain convinced that someone else is harassing Cindy. The police no longer accept any of her reports at face value, though. Mm -hmm. After yet another fire starts on April 15, 1986. And arson investigators determined that the fire was started inside the house and accused Cindy of setting it. Cindy accuses her ex-husband Roy of starting the fire, unaware that he was in South Africa at the time. This does not look good for her. Oh, boy. She's evicted from the house. Depressed and suicidal, she's given a six-month leave of absence from work. Had she truly been behind all of this the whole time? Or has someone else or something else driven her mad through years of continual and often violent harassment? Shortly after being evicted, at her therapist Connolly's advice, her brother Doug Hack commits Cindy to St. Paul's Hospital, Mm. where a police psychologist reviews Cindy's files, 
classes the attacks and arsons as psychotic behavior on the part of Cindy. Dr. Soon Mo and psychologist Ken Durkle reach the same conclusion. Psychiatrist Wesley Friesen believes Dr. Connolly's insistence that the harassment was real has hampered Cindy's treatment and consider it possible that Cindy could kill herself and stage it to look like the murder, um, uh, look like she was murdered by Roy Makepeace. Dr. Connolly himself concedes this is a possibility. Lots of different opinions. On July 15, 1986, Cindy is released from the psychiatric ward and enters therapy with psychiatrist Dr. Friesen. And she shows marked improvement throughout the summer. Two months later, in September, she buys a house in Richmond, changes her last name to James to hide her identity. Her life seems to finally be moving in a more positive direction. But then two months later, in November, Cindy is fired from uh, Blenheim House for poor work performance. She'd worked there since 1975. Wow. Cindy was devastated. She loved working with the children there. They were like her own children. The blow, though, does not break her. Her spirits soon appear to lift again. After a brief period of depression, she gets back on her feet takes refresher courses in nursing, gets hired at Richmond General Hospital in August of 1987. Then days after she starts her new job, she reports that someone has broken a window in her new home. Oh, no. Another window is reported broken the following month. Has her stalker found her again? Is she making it all up? After a quiet six months that follow, she then reports that someone has kicked in her basement door. Seven months after that, on October 26, 1988, over six years after all this began, she triggers another panic alarm set up by her old PI, who comes over at midnight, finds Cindy in her garage, partially nude, with a black stocking knotted around her neck, her hands and feet bound with another stocking, the fourth possible attack. She says this time she'd been grabbed from behind while getting in her car, and she can't remember what happened next. The police do not take her claim seriously and think that she has somehow done this to herself. A lot of opinions on both sides of that. Another threatening note shows up the following April. April. Another break-in attempt is reported that same month. Then the next month, late May of 1989, seven years after all this began, Cindy tells private investigator Caban that she wants to install an infrared alarm system in her backyard so that she can shoot any intruders. She also tells him that she is finally ready to talk, implying she's been withholding information for years. The fuck does that mean? Days later, on Friday, May 26, she disappears. When police find her, they'll reveal the final, very strange, sad chapter in her seven-year saga. The last day she was seen alive, May 26, Cindy began a five-day vacation from her job at Richmond General. The 44-year-old ran a few errands, including buying a birthday gift for a friend's son and getting friend's son and getting a makeover. When her friends, the Woodstocks, came over to play bridge with her at 10 p.m., her car was still gone. They find it in the parking lot of a local Safeway the day after she disappeared. Mm-hmm. When investigators went over the vehicle, they find blood on the driver's side door. Items from her wallet are thrown about outside the car. In the trunk, they find the groceries that Cindy had bought, along with the wrapped gift she had gotten for someone. For two weeks, her family and friends were left to wonder where Cindy was and what was happening to her. Then the gruesome discovery of her body shocked everyone. Mm-hmm. She was found in the front yard of an abandoned house in a rather high traffic area with lots of pedestrian foot travelers. It initially seemed that she couldn't have been killed when she was first reported missing, but after the autopsy, it showed that she had died most likely the day she disappeared. Her body showed numerous wounds, including yet another injection mark on her arm, later be determined to be a lethal dose of morphine. Oh. She was found with both her hands and feet tied behind her body. Around her neck, that signature black nylon, which looked like it had been used to try and strangle her. What was missing from the scene was a needle used to administer the morphine. The police 
concocted the notion that a lot of people didn't buy, that Cindy had injected herself elsewhere, discarded the needle, then walked a mile and a half to the scene where she had tied her feet and hands behind her back, then tried to strangle herself. That's literally impossible. The official cause of death was listed as a morphine overdose. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police claimed it was suicide or possibly an accident, just the way she was tied. Some people think it was possible she could have done it. Others think it wasn't possible. The Vancouver coroner ruled both of uh, the police's results out. The coroner ruled that Cindy's death was not suicide or an accident or a murder, claiming that she died of an unknown event, such a strange official cause of death. The private investigator she hired years earlier believes that she had been taken and killed and her body then dumped shortly before it was discovered. Her ex-husband, before he died years later, firmly believed that Cindy didn't kill herself exactly, but was murdered by herself. He believed that she had several distinct different personalities and that one of them hated her. One of them wanted her to suffer and then to die. How terrifying is that possibility? I know the psychiatric and psychological jury is out as far as the extent that alternate personalities can A, exist, and B, attempt to really harm you, but what if it is possible? What if you could truly be your own worst enemy in a very special and horrific way that you couldn't consciously perceive? And since we've talked about the possibility of malevolent, manipulative spirits before, so many times here on Scared to Death, what if Cindy was possessed by something? What if something was making it look like this other personality was out to get her or that someone else was? What if someone that was attached to her, turning everyone against her, turning her against herself? Or what if there was a mysterious outside person or entity terrorizing her for seven years? And by the end, in the final years, almost no one believed her. How awful is that? There are so many pers uh, possibilities regarding the exact details that led to Cindy James' death. The one thing I know for sure is that all of them are the stuff of nightmares. Very interesting. What a strange story. I get why it haunted that producer. It just doesn't make sense. Nope. And no one will ever agree exactly what really happened. I mean, details that I bump on are... No one looked at McBride, and that seems very peculiar that that mm -hmm. In my mind, he is suspect number one because stalkers are, you don't ever really know sometimes, you shouldn't, that was a sentence that didn't make sense. You don't always know yeah. where they're coming from or like who is stalking you, right? It can be, you know, right. someone who notices you at a distance. You know, it doesn't have to be, um, mm -hmm. you know, like you think about like the bodyguard, you know, it doesn't have to be some crazed sure, lunatic sure. fan. It doesn't have to be your neighbor. It doesn't have to be someone that you actually know or interact with. It uh, can just be someone yeah. that, again, sees you one time. Like, I don't know, like what if McBride just saw her sure. right in his work, his line of work? He may have at some point had to have somebody admitted to where she worked and saw her. Yeah. He could have been stalking her like mentally. Effort, but yeah. Yeah, but like her for, sister, I will say, did investigate this pretty th Not that she's an investigator. Yeah. But she wrote a whole book on it. One of her sisters. Um, it's not available in ebook, but you can get it in like hardback if you find it in the right spots. Yeah. It's no longer in print. But um, there's information about it. She has a website as well, blogs. She doesn't seem to think that he did it. And interestingly, she also doesn't seem to think that her ex-husband did it. But who does she think did it? That she really, truly doesn't know. Well, and what was that mob thing? That like oh, th that was just like a wild theory that didn't yeah. really seem to go anywhere. But like maybe that like one of the uh, kids that was in mm -hmm. her. Uh, facility mm -hmm. that their family was uh, tied to organized crime or members of organized crime yeah. and something there. I mean, it's just... I, I did write that down, like a, a disgruntled family yep. or a, uh. a, or 
a kid that was there that then years later right. got out, you know was released. And she definitely was mentally ill. She was stating it, but but then there's that thing and of like, she, wh- but was she mentally ill? Well, I mean, was she I been, don't know. Because if you're going to... Uh, numerous psychiatrists did think that she was, that she was suffering from, you know, some psychotic episodes. But wouldn't you be feeling like you were I having know, a psychotic break if this years was happening that. to you? I know, that's the thing. And she lived with a psychiatrist for, what, they were married 17 and years. And he thought she was mentally ill. Did he think that she was mentally ill while they were married? I couldn't figure out that nuance. I couldn't figure out, like, did he... Did he Is always that, did, feel that way? And and he wasn't the one from everything I read. He wasn't the one who left her. She left him. And I didn't include this detail. They continued to date off and on for a while after it just didn't seem like part of the flow of the horror story. But, right. Um, but they continued to date for a while after uh, they got divorced. But right. she also left him. I mean, he could have dated somebody who i mean people do you know marry people knowing they have disassociative identity disorder but that would be they a weird thing not the, to come forward with yeah that. yeah it would be weird not to come forward with it initially which didn't happen correct right and uh yeah yeah i mean i know it can you know generally generally from what i know about disassociative identity disorder which is not a ton but a little it, it comes from people who uh who have been diagnosed with it almost always have been severely abused as children, mm. like severely. And you go to There's that no, other place to No cope. detail. Yeah, that it, that it starts when you're forming your identity in adolescence. Mm. That's when the personalities all fracture. So it is weird that they would be married for that many years and he wouldn't say anything about it initially. Right, and, right. And there's no mention in any of the sources about any abuse of any kind in her childhood. Mm-hmm. So it would be very, very, very atypical for her to develop that later in life. Yeah. It, I, and And then just some of the details like the sexual assault upon herself with a knife that feels and and i will say that was her claim but that was never uh investigated from what i could tell by the police she said that happened Uh, part of her examination you Mm -hmm. know after the attack it didn't come from that so so that's interesting too in 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 the police exam she said that but they they didn't do a rape kit or no she uh, i got the feeling that she didn't ask for one that they there was visible cuts on her arms legs mm-hmm. she added that detail it doesn't appear that that detail was ever followed up on by police which leads me got to believe it. that she didn't want it to be followed up on okay and then okay. she just said it happened but that that's a tricky piece yeah. of the puzzle there's so many tricky pieces of the puzzle with this one but like the the morphine injections I don't know yeah. a ton about morphine, but and the only the last one was the one where they found morphine in her system. But the you would previous, think that it was yeah, correct. I correct. mean, you would you would connect those dots. You would say, yes. okay, at this point, after seeing these needle marks multiple times, finally we were able to find the substance in her system. We will presume that it was always the substance, even if she was getting high sure. on heroin or whatever. Sure. Okay, how would you get? Because in my mind, like you would be getting. If how do I want to say this? If an attacker was doing it, they're giving you the morphine so that they can do whatever they want to you without you fighting it. That is my yeah. my train of thought. So is she abusing herself and then shooting herself up for the I pain? I, which I, is weird. Or is she shooting herself up first and then supposedly attacking her own self, which wouldn't be possible and two of the attacks she wasn't found hurt you know the one when she was wandering in the park uh the one where she uh, on break from lunch when she was found wandering by that university on like the campus those there was needle marks but there was not evidence of assault with those two so it's interesting it's, it's, it's all over the map where like with the one there was the crazy assault of like 
either she or someone else put a fucking knife through her hand. Right, that's insane. That's insane. And then there was a time well, that she... Well, it might be literally insane. Yeah, and then there was a time that she was tied up. I, I was imagining her like execution style where it was like mm-hmm. her hands. Um, there was there were some people that, that were brought in, apparently as part of the investigation into her death, Yeah, that were more like experts in ligature and you know knots and all that. Yeah. They seemed to think that it was possible to put yourself in that situation. Very odd, very unusual, but the way she was found... I just you know, like, like uh, if I'm, I know you have to be pretty flexible. It's you, a whole series of things. I couldn't make it, a knot like to tie my own hands together. Right. Like I just, uh, I don't know why I decided it had to be up here. But like, if, I wish I had a piece yeah. of string right now. I just could demonstrate that I don't think I could do that. If it was her, she went to great lengths for many years to make it look like somebody else. Yeah, and I also just think about it in this. You know, um, my God, I'm having a hard time with words today. It wasn't like Craigslist or, you know, these like various internet outlets were an option where you could, you know, there are people who are in chat rooms who have different fantasies. Sure. Okay. They have like rape fantasies. Extreme have, bondage, BDSM stuff. Yeah. Right. So in my mind, it's not even, I don't know how, not that it didn't exist. I just don't know how you would have access to that, that she was having these weird things that she wanted to play out, these weird mm-hmm, fantasies, mm-hmm. but then was too scared and you know didn't want to reveal that information was too embarrassed it had gone too mm. far mm-hmm. uh, or like she was paying different people to tie her up and then she was taking that information because what she really got off on was the attention huh. from the police so uh, yeah interesting theory i mean there's so many possibilities we don't know why she left her husband i mean there's None so many sense. things and, and that's and that's why it haunts that from what i got from this one interview why it haunts that co-creator and producer is like she's thought about it for years and still is like, what the hell happened? Yeah. Wow. I, mean, I feel like I'm going to be thinking about this for a long time. Details and Googling and reading. Mm-hmm. It's a weird story. few pictures before we move on. Oh, yeah. Sorry. We talked a lot about that one. I just no, that's that fine. Was, had a lot of questions. Uh, this first picture is a nursing <sighs> student, Cindy Hack. She's so pretty. Mm, she's young. Yep. Very pretty. Uh, the next one is the young wife, Cindy Makepeace. And then, and then this is here, you know, not long before she died, definitely looked stressed and stuff. This is Cindy James, you know, not, oh, not a great picture. Oh, she's so thin. Yeah, she was, Ooh. from all accounts, you know, obviously, whether it's her, whether it's somebody else, this this saga would wear on someone. God, she looks really awful. Like, her head looks too big for her body, mm-hmm. you know, when someone gets really emaciated. Mm-hmm. And then and then two more. This uh, not a great image quality, couldn't, but this is one of the notes she received. The ICU, somebody holding a knife, uh, somebody getting strangled. And then this is this last one is a collage of just more of threatening notes kind of put together plus another picture of Cindy that's you know it's small there but you know knife soon Cindy all these kind of threats yeah the cats oh the cats yeah ah my god oh chills all over something really fucking weird <sighs> happened there yep uh, are you ready to explore something that is even weirder I, I guess this is an episode of weird things. Before we head to Chicago, time for a quick in-between sponsor uh, story break. Or story sponsor break. There we go. You can use words today like me. What is the most basic gift you have ever given the moms in your life for Mother's Day? Flowers? A candle? Some random knickknack you picked up at the last minute because you completely spaced Mother's Day? I have definitely made the mistake of procrastinating gifts for Mother's Day. And then, like the Friday before, I run to whatever store is open and convince myself that, yes, yes, my mom does need another coffee mug that declares she's the world's (laughs) best. 
So lame. This year, how about one-upping yourself by giving the moms in your life an Aura picture frame? Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to any mom at any age. Aura frames connect easily to Wi-Fi and have unlimited storage so you can share as many pictures as you want. This year, as many of you know, I am on a spending freeze, but one of my carve-outs was meaningful gifts for the people I love. I don't want to give all of the moms in our lives something that won't bring them joy. We are giving Aura frames to the moms in our world because they are timeless, heartwarming gifts. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code SCARED at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What are the things that weigh you down on a day-to-day basis? What kind of stress are you holding on to? Do you spend much of your day going over things in your brain over and over until they are so distracting it affects your mental health? Well, don't worry. You're not alone. We all carry different stressors, some big, some small. When we keep things bottled up, the results can be negative. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest without fear or judgment. It's a place to work through what is heavy on your mind and heart so that you can feel lighter and happier. I'm always holding on to something. It's the way my anxious brain works. I'm continually worried that I've done something wrong, that I've hurt the feelings of someone I love, and that I have let someone down. I'm stressed that I'm not being a good enough mom or wife. I panic that our life will implode at any given moment and it'll all be my fault. Thankfully, I have an amazing therapist who helps me talk through each of these scenarios. After each and every appointment, I feel lighter, happier, and more capable of showing up as my most authentic self. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Scared to Death today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Scared to Death. Summer is just around the corner. Who's excited? I know I am. With the warmer, sunnier days calling your name, the last place you're going to want to be is in your kitchen, cooking, and meal prepping. Make your life easier with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Factors Never Frozen, Always Fresh Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Think of all the extra time you will get outside in the summer sun when you aren't wasting hours in the kitchen. I think I speak for everyone when I say that the summer is the busiest time of the year. We are all trying to cram in as many things as possible, from concerts to vacations and everything in between. With Kyler home from college and Monroe on her break too, I want to spend as much time as possible with them. And while I truly love to cook, the summer is the one time of year that I'm the least interested in doing that for three meals a day. So I lean on Factor to help keep me healthy and in step with my diet. I'm obsessed with the honey yogurt pancakes for breakfast, the pork El Pastor for lunch, and the cilantro lime barramundi for dinner. So easy and saves me so much time. Head to factormeals.com slash scared to death 50 and use code scared to death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code scared to death 50 at factormeals.com slash scared to death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Thanks for listening to our sponsors, Creeps and Peepers. Hope you found some good deals. Okay, now for a story that I don't think is as terrifying as the first one, but in a way much more speak- spooky. Okay. It's the best evidence I think I have ever heard so far that there is definitive something on the other side like proof of something on the other side Mm -hmm. spirits they can come back from the dead to speak with us Uh, again another one that haunts the unsolved mysteries co-creator and i think it's going to haunt you too okay tiny bit of setup before we dive in you ready to go i'm ready in 1977 
Teresita Bassa was 47 years old and life seemed to be going very well for her. By all accounts, she was happy. Her life was moving in a good direction. She was living in Chicago and employed at Edgewater Hospital. She'd recently gone back to school, was working on her doctoral thesis in music at Loyola University. A gifted pianist, she gave piano lessons out of her apartment on the side. She herself had once been a music student back in the Philippines where she'd grown up. The only child of a prominent and wealthy couple, she'd graduated from Assumption College in Manila, then moved to the United States, earned a master's degree in music from Indiana University before transitioning into working in the medical field and becoming a respiratory therapist. Time now for the tale of the ghost that came back to solve her own murder. Monday, February 21st, 1977, started off as a routine day for Teresita. She worked her normal day shift at the hospital, then returned to her apartment building at 2740 North Pine Grove Avenue. Around 7.30 p.m., she received a phone call from her friend Ruth Loeb, and the two of them talked for about 20 minutes before Teresita told Ruth she had to get off the phone because she was expecting company. All Ruth knew was that some man was stopping by. She didn't ask for the man's name or any other details. Not even an hour later, at 8.40, a couple who lived down the hall from Teresita, Marid and Catherine Nazi, thought that they smelled smoke. They couldn't figure out where it was coming from, placed a call to the building's janitor, who immediately called the Chicago Fire Department and started evacuating residents. By the time firefighters rushed into the building, the hallway had rapidly filled with smoke. Firefighters arrived quickly and determined that the source of the smoke, or put the fire out quickly, and determined the source of the smoke was apartment 15B where Teresita lives. Oh, excuse me. Now they broke down her door, put the flames out in minutes, and found her lifeless body. Laying on the floor under a mattress and covered in blood was the still warm corpse of Teresita. She was naked, had a kitchen knife planted deeply into the center of her chest. Jesus. Detectives were called to the scene, quickly determined that whoever had killed her had lit the blaze in order to destroy any evidence of their crime. Then, after killing her, they'd thrown a pile of clothing on top of her, lit it on fire, then thrown on the mattress to burn it as well. Jeez. Since Teresita had been nude when she'd been set on fire, detectives first assumed that she'd likely been raped before she'd been killed. Mm -hmm. But then the autopsy showed no signs of sexual assault. It appeared that she had been robbed, though. Maybe. Her apartment had clearly been ransacked, and it was clear that a struggle had taken place, but detectives couldn't figure out what, if anything, had been taken. They combed through the apartment looking for any clues that might lead them to their killer, but it appeared the murderer left no physical evidence behind. One of the few things detectives did take as evidence was a memo that Teresita had apparently written to herself, reminding her to, quote, get theater tickets for A.S. Investigators had no idea who A.S. might be, nor how recently Teresita had written the notes, but they were very obviously interested in locating this mystery person. Mm Mm-hmm. And they would be led to this person, but they would have never guessed in a million years how. Homicide detectives spent the next several weeks in interviewing Teresita's friends, co-workers, neighbors, and classmates. They all spoke highly of Teresita. The general consensus was that she was quiet and polite, someone who was very dedicated to her job and highly regarded by her patients. Although she occasionally dated, no one knew of anyone specific she was seeing. She'd never married, and if she had a rich romantic life, she didn't talk about it much. She seemed focused on her work at the hospital and teaching and studying music. Mm-hmm. No one could figure out who could possibly want to kill her. She didn't seem to have any enemies. Everyone who knew her seemed genuinely shocked at the thought that someone could have possibly wanted her dead. During the course of the, during the, course of the investigation, detectives learned a lot about Teresita, and none of it led them any closer to her killer. They made several public pleas for assistance. No tips flowed in that led to any solid leads. Her case quickly went cold, or rather stayed cold, They'd never had any suspects. 
Then five months after Teresita was murdered, in July of 1977, Detective Joe Statula arrived at work one morning to find a note on his desk asking him to call the Evanston Police Department about the Bossa murder. An Evanston officer soon told him they just received a call from someone claiming to have info about the murder, one Dr. Jose Chua, a doctor who lived in Skokie, a Chicago suburb. And when Detective Stachula and his partner, Detective Lee Eplin, interviewed the doctor at his home, their minds would be blown with the details he would tell them. After a few minutes of small talk, Dr. Chua, a medical doctor, not a witch doctor, timidly asked the men if they believed in the occult, in the paranormal. While the detectives later admitted thinking at this point they were completely wasting their time, they played along and said that they did. Then Dr. Chua, who went by Joe, proceeded to tell them that he believed that his wife, Remy, had been possessed by the spirit of Teresita Bassa. Excuse? Oh, this is going to get crazy. Remy, also from the Philippines, a country where the average citizen believes in the paranormal with much more conviction than the average American, mm -hmm. had recently started having very strange and intense dreams involving Teresita, a woman she briefly met but barely knew. Remy had worked at the same hospital as Teresita for a little while, but on different shifts. They'd met at orientation, but didn't stay in touch. There is no way she should have known what she would go on to tell her husband and then what her husband would tell the police. She'd heard Teresita had been murdered on the news, and a while after that, her dreams began. For a long time, she tried to ignore them. But then one day, she had more than a dream. Her husband watched her slip into some sort of trance-like state. She started speaking to him in a voice that was not her own. Oh my God. A voice he had never heard before. In this, uh, uh, this, this new voice claimed to be Teresita's voice. Through this trance state, Teresita told Joe that she needed his help. She told him that she had been murdered by a man named Alan Showery, A.S., and that she needed him to tell the police the following information. Oh, my God. Alan had arrived at her apartment to supposedly fix her television. Then, when he showed up, he'd killed her instead. Then, after Teresita's ghost begged him once more to go to the police immediately, her voice faded away. Remy snapped out of her trance, professing no knowledge of what had just happened. When her husband told her, she said that is what she had been dreaming about for weeks. But Joe does not call the police at this time. He and his wife talked themselves into believing she had just been talking in her sleep, mm -hmm. that it was all just still dreams. But then a week later, Remy fell into another trance, started speaking to her husband in that same foreign voice, a voice that was now very angry. Teresita's ghost now demanded to know why Joe had not notified the police. Joe told her that he was a doctor, that he was scientifically minded, that he was not going to go to the police without any tangible proof to back up the claim that Alan Shorey was Teresita's murderer. At this point, he still thought or hoped this was just another strange episode of his wife talking in her sleep. Mm -hmm. But then the foreign voice coming out of his wife's mouth told him that Alan Shorey had stolen some jewelry from her apartment, several very unique pieces that her father had purchased in France many years ago and given to her mother. That after stealing the jewelry, Alan had given the jewelry to his girlfriend. Then, this is crazy. Then this voice gave him the names and the phone numbers what? of four different people that Teresita knew that they didn't know who could identify this jewelry as belonging to Teresita. Then the voice, after urging him again to please contact the authorities, went silent again. His wife snapped out of her trance, claiming like the first time that she had no idea what had just transpired. Joe now finally decided to call the police. It was all too specific. As crazy as it was, he no longer believed that it was just dreams. 
the, the, uh, the detectives listening to all this were of course skeptical. But the name Joe gave them did match the initials on the memo Teresita had written to herself, A.S., Alan Showery. And those initials were the most promising evidence they'd taken from her apartment. Perhaps there was something to his claims after all. Even if there weren't, it was the first possible lead of any kind they'd had in months, and they figured it wouldn't hurt to at least look into it. They ran a background check on Alan, and wouldn't you know it. He lived near Teresita and was also employed at Edgewater Hospital in a different department. After speaking with a few of Alan's co-workers, they were shocked to learn that over and over again, each one of them remembered Alan talking about fixing Teresita's TV for her. Holy shit, could he actually be the guy, they wondered. Oh my god. Was Teresita's ghost leading them to him? They now decided to pay Alan a visit. Visit. They drop by his apartment unannounced, find both Alan and his girlfriend, Yonka Kamluk, at home. They ask Alan if he'd be willing to go down to the police station with them. They tell him they're investigating the murder of Teresita, and since he'd known her, even if he just barely knew her, they were hoping he could help them help uh, solve this case. Alan agrees, thinking there's no way he's their suspect. Speaking down at the station, Alan initially denies ever going into Teresita's apartment. But then when they confront him with the fact that numerous other people had overheard him saying he was going there to fix her television, he changes his story. Mm-hmm. He now tells him that, yes, he had gone to her apartment. He had gone inside. But then he left when he realized he hadn't brought all the right tools. He told him that when he'd left, Teresita was alive and well. He told her he'd be back soon, immediately returned to his own apartment. He then told them that he couldn't return right away to fix Teresita's TV because once he got home, his girlfriend Yonka was having some electrical problems at his place. He needed to figure out what was going on before he did anything else. That feels weird. At this point, the detectives put their interview with Alan on pause. They returned to his apartment to speak with his girlfriend. They asked her if she'd asked Alan to fix anything electrical in their apartment and she had no idea what they were talking about. Oh, shit. She said they'd never had electrical problems in their apartment that she knew of. Even if they did, she didn't think Alan could fix them. As far as she knew, he didn't. Uh, he couldn't fix anything electrical, like a TV. He was lying. He was lying about all of it. Following up further on their tips from a fucking ghost, the detectives then asked Yonka if Alan had given her any jewelry recently. Of course he had. Oh my God. He'd given her a couple pieces of jewelry back in February, right after Teresita was murdered, telling her they were belated Christmas gifts. Holy shit. Then she told him that she was actually wearing them right now. And she pointed out the pendant around her neck, the gold and pearl cocktail ring on her finger. Now they asked Yonka if she could follow them back down to the police station, and she agreed. She had no idea what was going on, no idea she was helping them prove that her boyfriend was a killer. The detectives now arranged to have the people who could supposedly identify the jewelry meet them at the station. Jesus. They called the four numbers the doctor had given them. The numbers his wife had relayed to him while claiming to be possessed by the ghost of Teresita. They speak with the people her spirit had said would possess those uh, phone numbers. All four come down to the station. All of the numbers and names line up. Unbelievable. All four confirm that Yonka's jewelry had indeed been stolen from Teresita's apartment. Alan was now confronted with all of this evidence against him. He's told where the evidence had come from. He is now as shocked as the detectives. His skin went pale. You could tell he was scared, and he immediately confesses to the murder. He tells them that he decided to rob Teresita because he needed rent money. Holy shit. Since she was expecting him to come and fix her television, and apparently had decided she would give him theater tickets to thank him, she let him in the apartment willingly. As she turned around, he attacked her. He told the detectives that he had stripped her clothes off to make it look like it had been a sexual assault. And he told uh, them that he had stabbed her once in the chest. 
He couldn't find enough money to pay his rent. He was only able to find $30 in cash, so he grabbed the jewelry to make the murder worthwhile. Then he started the fire to cover up his crimes. He admitted to everything. It fit all the evidence they had exactly. All of the, None of this was published. He couldn't have known. The detectives that helped bring him into justice would later tell reporters they had no other explanation for finding him outside of a murder victim's ghost telling them who their killer was. They were now firm believers in the paranormal. The doctor's wife, from what they could gather from their investigation, really truly had not known Teresita. There was no way that she should have been able to know what she relayed to her husband. And he definitely didn't know Teresita. It didn't seem that the two had ever, ever met. Alan was arrested, charged with murder. The case went to trial on January 21st, 1979, but ended in a hung jury four weeks later. What? The jury, for whatever reason, had deadlocked. Then, to add a bit more spook to this story, while in prison, awaiting retrial, Alan curiously decided to suddenly plead guilty in exchange for a sentence reduction. He was given 14 years for murder. Another four for robbery, another four for arson. Why would he suddenly confess when he might be able to get another jury to deadlock? The rumor is that he confessed after Teresita's ghost visited him in prison and scared the living shit out of him. Fuck yeah. If Alan's still alive, his sentence would have ended years ago. He's now a free man out there somewhere and 75 years old. And I have to wonder, does Teresita's spirit continue to haunt him? I love Teresita. Isn't that crazy? That is insane. I just, I can't wrap my head around. I can't believe I hadn't heard of this story before. That's just, so crazy. A couple pictures. Okay. Before we get into it. Uh, this I first, have the chills all over. Oh my God. It, it's just It freaked so, me out retelling it. Yeah. It's such a crazy How story. How is it possible? This first one is Teresita Bassa. Uh-huh. Hi, Teresita. Uh, the second one is Alan Shorey, her murderer. Okay. And then this third one is just one of many headlines. This is a Boston Globe headline, March 8th, 1978. Voice from grave names, murderer begs vengeance. I love it. How wild is that story? I love it. And, you know, and there was a bunch of people that knew Teresita and, you know, they had been interviewed. None of them said like, oh, yeah, you know, this this other person, this, um, oh, this Filipino lady, I can't remember her name right now. Remy. 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 I love that name. Yeah. None of them ever uh, said, that, oh, well, they really knew each other. That and they didn't up. know her. Yeah. Like, you know, it was a big hospital. They, the two of them had worked there. Yes, they had been in an orientation together, but they weren't friends. Yeah, please. They weren't it's even like, really acquaintances. They just happened to be in an orientation together. Right. And think about like how many new employees are hired at any place and you're all shoved into one conference room. You right. get the same orientation and then boop, on your way. And also, it's, uh, if she did know her, if she somehow knew all these weird details about Alan, which how the fuck would, how would she know, she know that? Unless she was there, unless she helped with it. Right. Why wouldn't Alan? He have... worked at the same hospital too, but they weren't friends. Nobody said that. Well, right, and, and, why, and he wouldn't be just around the hospital being like, "Oh yeah, and I did this, and I did this, and here's the four people who could identify it, and here's their phone numbers." Well, and like if what? Alan would have said like, "Oh no, Remy did it. She put me up to it." Like he doesn't sound like he right. ever. I mean, he confessed. No, there was no, no evidence at all. She was never even on the map of being a suspect at all. I mean, he did it. He He for sure did it. He admitted it. Yeah, he admitted. He told them all the details. I don't know how that jury was. I mean, who knows? It could have been political stuff. Who knows what it could have been? Right. It could have been so many different things. Could have been uh, some procedural error. Right, right. Like that when he confessed that they didn't have, they hadn't read him Miranda rights. Like whatever it was, there could be so many finite details. I couldn't find the court transcript. Exactly. Yeah. 
But like I found like numerous things with these, you know, investigators and they firmly believe and, you know, that what I told in the story happened. And why would this medical doctor? I know of all people. Yeah. Why would he risk his reputation mm-hmm. for and, and why would his wife, when she clearly didn't have anything to do with the crime, why would she grow through this all these weird theatrics right. to give details that she could have been just like, hey, Joe, here's what I know. Exactly. It doesn't make any fucking sense other than her ghost came back and possessed somebody I and love caught it. her killer. I, I love it so much. It actually bananas. That story does not scare me at all. It makes but, me so happy. But it does open the door, of I think, wider to every story we've told I here. Listen, Dan, I don't want to let my mind go there. <laughs> I simply want to say, if I'm ever murdered, I love knowing I can come back and solve my own murder. That's what <laughs> yeah, I love. Yeah. That's what I love. I love Teresita. <sighs> I my favorite part of the story was when Joe said that he, Dr. Joe told yeah, Teresita, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, nope, I haven't gone to the police. Like, she comes back for a second time. She's so mad at him. And he's like, listen, right. I'm a medical professional. I need more evidence. Mm. That, and then boom, 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 boom. That is All a, the evidence. That is a particularly interesting conversation to be having with someone. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, you're talking to someone beyond the grave. And, and it doesn't sound like his, his wife, it's not like he was like, uh... Yeah, my wife does this all the time. So that's why I didn't no. believe it. She's always speaking to voices. I bet it never happened again. I, I bet it never happened before and never happened since. It is so bizarre. So bizarre. Okay, so when you before you told this story, I was asking you about, like, do you think that people can come back in other forms like that, right? So yeah. now I understand. But what's your take on that? Like, do you have you ever had an experience where someone else has said to you, like, um, oh, you know... I feel like you're talking to me about somebody like like mm. like I feel like I've known you in a different way. I feel like I've known you for a hundred years. Like is that sort of like deep yes. cosmic I've connection? Felt, I've felt weird and just about random people I've met over the years where I'm like, yeah. I know you, but I, I never met him. Yeah. But there's just something I'm like, I I knew you somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I wonder if that isn't mm-hmm. a spirit working through you, like uh, ah. you know, because I think about did you see something? It was just the way the light reflects on oh, the glasses. Oh, you freaked me out. me out. Yeah, it freaked <laughs> me out. I think about, I think I've talked about this before, but I, I, I must just have a familiar face or mm. there are spirits working through me because it, without exaggerating, if I was out like running errands every day of my life, at least once a day, someone would say to me, hey, aren't you? Or I know hmm. you. Or mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. oh, you look just like, like I... Yeah. I don't know if it's the way that I talk or the way I carry myself or that I'm open to like strangers coming up to me and talking yeah. to me. I don't know what it is, huh. but that happens to me. Like when, when I was working in LA, my job had me out and about a lot and it would happen to me all the time. Aren't you? No. No, you are. Nope. I assure you I'm not your friend's brother's sister's cousin. Like it was just always so weird. And that story makes me think yeah. like, is it something else? Is it... Are because I talk about being an empath and being spongy and picking things up and feeling all the things. Mm-hmm. Am I picking up little pieces of spirits as I go? That- no, I first saw. I thought. I thought I was like. I know that sexy little butt. <laughs> no, <laughs> you did. Whose butt did you think it was? <laughs> You're like I've seen that ass before. J Lo. <laughs> <laughs> well nice. done. Well done, Joe. I will nice. take it. I will take it. Also. Kind of weird that you said that. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey. Hey. Um, it, uh, it made me think about, um, you know, your stepsister, who's like one of my best friends, Emily. Mm-hmm. She lost her brothers and her dad in a really awful, tragic accident. And we've had mm-hmm. these conversations where she shares some stuff with me about her brothers. And it just feels like in moments, like I'm channeling them. Like, it's just yeah. so bizarre, some of the things that she'll say. And it, like, rocks us both to tears of, like... 
you know, a horrible thing happened in her life and mm-hmm. like nearly impossible to find silver lining in it. But our friendship is something that has come out of it in the long term. And we've just had these like cries about it mm-hmm. of like, oh my God. Yeah, you guys have an interesting relationship. Yeah, yeah. it's so, so intense. It's really cool. Uh, before you tell your stories, yes, I want to acknowledge uh, my nephew Emerson Hale. Thanks, M, our for, number one fan. Yeah, he'll forever. He is. Sorry, guys, no one can beat him. He's our family. <laughs> he he uh, has given me a new squishy it's when hysterical. he was on vacation. He found in a little curiosity gift shop a little you know replica of a shrunken head. So or got, it's a real shrunken or head. Real. So I have my real squishy head, shrunken squishy head. You'll never be a shrunken head. <laughs> I would be I would be the worst shrunken head. They'd be like, that's ah, still pretty big. It'd be, like, it'd be like, this is a shrunken head. Like, that looks like a normal size head. Yeah, but if you just saw the head earlier, you'd know that now it's been shrunken. <laughs> it's so funny because you wouldn't look at you and know that you have a big head. Right. You don't look disproportionate. Mon- Monroe also has a big head that she's like figuring that out as she tries to wear hats. She's funny. like, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, sorry, Mama. Uh, that's awesome. But, but it doesn't look weird. It's just when you try to put a baseball hat on. <laughs> All right. Are you... I'm afraid I'm going to knock that. Are you ready, Spaghetti? I'm ready. Okay. So we're off to Columbia, as I mentioned before, yeah. for this like very bizarre story from our fan Oscar down there, who, like, I'm so excited to tell his story. We were emailing yesterday, and he was just saying that it's been a rough year, which it has mm-hmm. been for so many people, and this was something that really brought him some joy. So okay. I'm really happy to be able to give this to him yeah. to share his story. Uh, yeah, it's it's just, it's twisty. It's twisty turny. Yeah, I'm excited to hear it. Um, yeah, I, I want you to be thinking about, as I tell this story, if it's about Oscar's dad, okay. and if this was your dad, like, what the fuck would you do? And, <laughs> okay. Because your dad has a, a very colored history, and I can, I, can, I can actually see your dad ending up in some of these scenarios. Okay. So great. All right. So this, this story begins. This took place a few years ago, and while these events do not currently affect me, I still found them to be deeply upsetting, and I'm hoping you guys will make help me make sense of this entire situation. I emigrated to the United States when I was a young boy. However, my father, along with most of my family, remained in Colombia. Naturally, I grew up in a very different environment than most of my family, and although I regular, regularly attended CCD classes, which is uh, like catechism, Um, and would go to church on Sundays, I found myself growing into quite the bit of skeptic when it came to religion. This was a strong contrast with my family in South America, who are deeply Catholic, believing not only in forces of good, but in the forces of evil as well. While in college, I learned that my father was going through an ugly divorce. He asked if I would move in with him for the time being, and I immediately jumped at the chance to help him. I put my life on hold and quickly flew to be with him. I soon noticed he was struggling not only emotionally, but financially as well. As far as I was concerned up until recently, I thought he'd had a strong business and a happy marriage. However, this was no longer the case. He was always surrounded by a lot of people, and these people were very, very nice. A little too nice, in my opinion, and it always made me feel uncomfortable. I didn't give it much thought at the time as I was just happy he wasn't alone. I soon came to know these people as they were a part of a prayer group my father had created that met twice a week. Mm -hmm. I was invited into a session, and this is where I found out that not only did they pray, but they performed some types of exorcisms on people that felt they needed it. I didn't want to judge, but if I'm honest, I found it all to be a bit funny. I thought it was all a big act by the person claiming to be possessed. Naturally feeling a strong sense of curiosity, I decided to witness one of these so-called exorcisms. 
it was a woman who quickly started yelling obscenities when the praying began. She would contort her body into strange poses, proceeded to roll around on the floor for what seemed like 10 minutes. And at some point she stopped and everyone claimed she was cured. This was further confirmed, at least everyone thought it was, when she knelt by the statue of the Virgin Mary and began caressing it. The relief in the room was soon interrupted by her devious laughter. I glanced at this woman and noticed she was not touching the Virgin Mary, Mm -hmm. but rather the snake that was at her feet. If you have seen the Virgin Mary, uh, seen depictions of the Virgin Mary, she's often pictured standing on top of a snake. This is supposedly to signify the Virgin Mary's dominance over Satan, the very Satan depicted by the snake, which this woman was now kissing and caressing. Everyone in the room began to pray once again, and she began to roll around again, yelling, seemingly in a lot of pain. By now, I thought to myself, this is such nonsense. As soon as this thought rose up in my mind, this woman looked at me and yelled, doubter, doubter, doubter. I especially was startled because no one spoke English Hmm. other than myself. I tried to make sense of it, and I decided that the conclusion was that she must have known a few words in English and had heard I grew up in the States, and I went home and tried to put the entire night behind me. A few weeks later, the prayer group met at our house. We were asked to form a circle and close our eyes, and everyone began to pray. Some prayed in Spanish, while others prayed in tongues. After a few minutes, I opened my eyes and noticed a few people had their right hands pointing toward the middle of the circle, their index finger extended, performing a circular clockwise motion while simultaneously sticking out their tongues, spinning it in a counterclockwise direction. This unsettled me, and for the first time, I felt scared and wanted to leave the room. But I knew this would upset them, so I closed my eyes, hoping it would all be over soon. Little by little, I began to notice the people in this prayer group did not practice what they preached. While I would not go as far to say they were bad people, I did find them to not be nearly as virtuous in comparison to how much time they spent praying. I decided to distance myself from the group and focus on work and my relationship instead. I was working managing my father's company. It was a large facility that included not only the factory and the offices, but a chapel and an apartment. I had settled into the apartment, which was located directly underneath the chapel where most of these exorcisms were performed. My girlfriend at the time had spent the night with me, and we began hearing noises from the chapel located above my room. My girlfriend note. My girlfriend began to point out to me that the strange that this sorry my girlfriend began to point out to me how strange this all was that my dad's life was full of misfortune and that the cause could be the exorcisms they performed exorcisms were not sanctioned by the church i might add Hmm. at least not these ones she insisted that the chapel and the apartment were unusually cold and she felt something was very seriously wrong one night i had finished working late and was walking the short distance to my apartment when i saw the shadow of a man It seemed as if it was being reflected from the outside through the window, but this was impossible since since this was on the fourth floor. There was no way someone's shadow could have been projected there. I began to listen to what my girlfriend had said and considered all that what she was saying was making sense. Coincidentally, the activity began to escalate from here. We began to hear new noises at night. It was as if someone was moving chairs around in the chapel. Although they were not moved in a violent manner, it sounded as if someone was trying to get our attention. These noises escalated into footsteps walking around 
on yeah. top of my room for most of the night and the doorknob being turned and the door swinging wide open in front of my girlfriend one night while she was alone. I told a few people I could trust about it and learned no one had been able to last more than a month in this apartment. We could not tolerate it any longer and made the decision to move into an apartment away from the company. A few months passed when I found out my father was dating a woman from his past. When I told my mother, she told me to be careful with this woman as she had tried to get in between them 20 years earlier and was somehow involved in witchcraft. Not believing any of it, I have inquired further and told was told my mother would get threatening phone calls from this other woman that she started feeling as if someone was watching her at night. She described how my grandmother had given her a metal crucifix claiming it would protect her, a crucifix that somehow snapped in half while it was hanging in the rearview mirror of my mother's car. I naturally found all of this to be a bit hard to believe. A few days later, my father got into a fight about who knows what with his new girlfriend's family. And the next thing you know, he gets a call from a man claiming to be a shaman chanting in a strange language. This did make me wonder if my mom's story wasn't so far-fetched. I noticed it changed my father. He suddenly became impossible to work for. He was always upset with me and would change his mind often and usually for no reason. Even though I had been able to make great progress in my time at the company, our arguments and disagreements became too great and I was fired. He seemed to have a new and deep hatred for me that I could not explain. He forbid me from entering the premises and refused to pay me my salary, all in an effort to cause as much damage as possible to my life. I couldn't explain nor understand this behavior from the person who had once loved me the most and for whom I had given up my life in the mm -hmm. States. I decided it was time to come back home. My new wife and I moved into my mother's apartment in America while we sold all of our belongings. One night, while cooking, I began to feel like I was being watched. I felt a knock at the main door and I went to see who it was. I was surprised when I opened the door and didn't see anyone. I continued cooking, but began to get that feeling again, that someone was watching me. I felt a sense of dread like I had never felt before. I quickly finished and went to lie in bed with my wife. That night, I woke and was instantly very afraid. I knew someone was in the room with us. I noticed one of the corners of the room was darker than all the rest. Once my eyes had adjusted, I had barely just enough time to make out a shadow of a woman with long hair before she jumped on top of me. I could feel her hands uh. and long fingernails around my neck. Instinctively, I reached and put my hands around her neck, which caused me to wake up. I woke up to the sight of my hands around my own wife's neck. She was on top of me trying to calm me down after I had been struggling and choking for minutes in my sleep. I told her what had happened, and as soon as I convinced myself it had been a nightmare, we both felt a loud knock as the bedroom window vibrated, followed by a loud and menacing laugh. This was unsettling for a few reason. A few reasons. Once, one was the laugh. It was demonic and evil, almost like it was mocking us. And two, impossibly the scariest reason was that we were on the ninth floor of the building with no balconies. Mm -hmm. We could not sleep for the rest of the night. Speaking to my mother the next morning, she confessed she had been keeping something from us. She had been receiving calls from an unknown number, threatening her and telling her to get her son out of the country or something else would happen to him. When we returned to the States, I felt a rush of relief come over me. We had recently tried to connect with my father as he is no longer involved with that woman. We can't help but shake the strong ne negativity we feel whenever we are around him. Whenever we are near him, we either have something stolen or my wife and I get into fights, which is really unlike us. 
This negativity happens often enough that we noticed a pattern which coincided with whenever we spoke or interacted with my dad. We therefore decided to keep our distance and put all of this behind us. Oscar. That's crazy, Oscar. Like, is his dad some sort of weird beacon? Or or his dad was... Oh, that's the little um, doll you have. Oh, my God. That, that's the little black... But where is it? I threw them both at you. They're on the floor oh. by you. Yeah, they're over here. Oh, I think I stepped on one. Oh... My, my sweet God. baby Jesus. Sorry, if you couldn't if you couldn't hear, if you just got quiet. Oh, end, my Lindsay, God. Lindsay threw these little dolls. I forgot that they had little voice boxes, and I swear I wasn't doing that on purpose. I was just moving around in my chair, and I must, yep, and that's what we just heard. So could you please open the door and let us in? Oh, we just scared the shit out of ourselves. Oh, my God, because I was like, I was about to say, oh there's no way it could just go off because you have to squeeze it, but you uh, touched it with your foot. I touched it with my foot. For I had sure. My, for sure. I had 100%. My foot on, 100%. You felt something squishy well, on the floor I and think, you pushed it. I think. It was by my foot when I looked down there. I, it was by my foot when I looked down there. I, I didn't do it on purpose for sure because I, I didn't even, I forgot those things But because that scared. I was about to get out of the room. I was like, <laughs> what is happening? Um, back to Oscar. Oh! <gasps> Holy smokes. I wish I did that intentionally. Um, yeah. Back to Oscar. Uh, that is such a wild story where, um, like, okay, just following it. Like, if this is a, a movie I'm watching, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, that is a cult of some kind. Yes. They are not into, you know, the good side of Christianity. They're in the, the dark side. Agreed. They're invoking things, not trying to exercise things. They're bringing things. They brought something into, like, black magic type weird mm-hmm. shit. They brought something into that little chapel by the apartment. Some kind of entity that was, you know, ter- terrorizing them, mm-hmm. and they did something to his dad, and uh, and then did something to him mm-hmm. too to get him to be away from his dad. Uh-huh. And then if his dad is still has that weird energy around him, even though he's no longer with that weird like witchcraft lady, she did something to his spirit uh-huh. with her something attached to him or right, something. Like, well, he's being isolated. Ugh. You know, like he's, he's that one, was a creepy, creepy story. He's being isolated, in my opinion, because it's like if he is alone, the things can get to him. You know, a lot of times in these stories, it's just like no Man. one could get close to them. They couldn't love anybody. They, you know, yeah. everything in their life falls apart. This is this is episode is is uh, scarier than I thought it was going to be. I know it's it's very it's psychologically thrilling. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Very, very, very creepy. Yeah, that one gave me goosebumps numerous times. Okay. Well, you're gonna dig this next one. Okay. I love this story because the it has a little bit of levity to it. Yeah. But the the twist at the end is, I think it's gonna get you just based on the totality of this episode. You're gonna be like, what the fuck? Okay. Okay. So it, you're gonna think that we're having a sleep paralysis story. Okay? okay. And and maybe or in my opinion, definitely not. Okay. Okay. Now, on the note of sleep paralysis, I just want to tell you that some weird stuff has been happening to me. Remember how I've been saying, like, I had just, like, two experiences, and I mentioned one recently where I just, like, woke up, and, like, um, you were at work, still, Mm -hmm. you were at the studio Mm -hmm, late, mm -hmm. and the dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The last couple of nights, it happened to me when we were at your grandma's, and I don't know if it was self-induced because we slept at Grandma Betty's house, and yeah. you have told the story about how Aunt, uh, your grandma, Stelle Talked about people visiting her in that room that we slept in. Yes, and so yeah. it was really hard. I was, I, I was thinking of it, but I was like, no way I'm bringing that up to Lindsay. Oh, I was thinking the same thing, and I was okay. like, he'll be so annoyed if I bring it up, because then he'll be like, okay, great, now I'm not going to sleep. Like, I know the whole routine, <laughs> that you'll be so angry. Okay. Not angry, frustrated. Mm-hmm. You'll be a butthead, and you won't mm-hmm. snuggle me, and you won't stay up as late as I want oh, you to. Jeez. So. That's mm-hmm. part of the reason I didn't sleep all weekend at your grandma's. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but also, this is so weird, babe. 
But when I was going to sleep the one night, I so wore, I heard like a word spoken, like a woman's voice. I thought mm-hmm. it's a Jenny, but th- I was like, Lindsay, you're hearing things. We were Don't so- touch my grandson's penis. <laughs> Stop it. Okay. But I was thinking like, okay, we're sleeping with the window open. We're in a place that I have never slept before. Yeah. Uh, it was rodeo weekend, so people were out late. So I actually could have heard someone say Jenny. But Yes, it- true, true. Because there was, yeah, was rodeo weekend. There was like parties, you know. Right. <laughs> quote unquote downtown. Downtown. Uh, but at the bar that was, you know, you could hear what was going on from my grandma's house. Exactly. So I was like, okay, okay. Yeah. I justified it that way. But then last night, mm-hmm. going to bed. Not by the rodeo. Not by the rodeo. We're back home. Our our room is, I would say, pretty like soundproof. Like mm, yeah. not mm-hmm. lots of mm-hmm. sounds don't seep in or out. Um, and we were going to sleep, and I was so sure that I heard whispering, like so much so that my heart sank to my stomach. Whoa. But then I was like, then I was having a moment, I'm like, am I asleep? Am I awake? Like, what is happening? Like, I, th- I thought I was just going to sleep, but like, was I in like that weird in-between phase? Did you hear, now you can touch my grandson's penis. <laughs> Stop! I'm trying to tell you something serious! <laughs> okay, I know, I'm listening. I, I, come on, I got it out of my system. Come on, that's a pretty good one. No, it's not. It's dumb. And oh. I'm trying to tell you, like, these scary things are happening to me okay. on our scary I know. Port- I'm trying to lighten it up. I'm you're trying to lighten up because yeah. you're fucking scared. And this is what you do. I don't want you to get too scared. I'm fine. I'm telling oh, okay. you, okay. like, some weird shit that's happening. But you didn't. You didn't, But you, you don't want to be scared. You're so ridiculous. No, probably, yeah, uh, you're. The, oh, man, I could fucking psychoanalyze you right now so hard. <laughs> uh. Did you. <laughs> Did you hear the whispering saying it, but you, you couldn't, couldn't make it out? I couldn't make it out, yeah. but it was just bizarre. Ugh. I well, know. Hopefully you don't hear it again. But I fucking hope not. If you bring, yeah. do not bring those dolls home and do not play a trick on me, I will kill oh, yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. So anyways, this story like had me flashing it, as I was refreshing myself this morning before recording this. I was like, oh, yeah, like this is interesting timing. Okay. Hey, Dan and Lindsay, I've only just started watching your podcast. My daughter's best friend suggested it, and now I'm binging the podcast. I love that. So cute. Mm-hmm. I watched a few that touched on the subject of sleep paralysis, a subject I know well. I've been dealing with sleep paralysis since my early teens. Sleep paralysis is not a paranormal thing, of course, but I feel if it's coupled with being sensitive, things get a little bit murky. I'm not a writer, so I'm not going to embellish here. Just straight to the facts. Also, I don't want to share names or locations. We live in a small town, and I just don't need the drama. (laughs) This is a true story. At 15, my family and I were living in a small town in southern Indiana. Which, by the way, we get a lot of stories from Indiana. Like, what the fuck is going on over there? The town where my parents grew up. Uh, Where Logan's creepy ass came from. Exactly, exactly. I hear him laughing. (laughs) It's a very old town prone to flooding from the Ohio, and everyone knows everybody. Pretty typical small town. We lived next door to a single father of two boys, ages 11 and 12. The dad had gotten a job paying big money, but it was a two-hour commute, and he needed a babysitter. His shift started at 5 a.m., and that would mean I would have to walk over to their house at about 2.30 a.m. I would go over to my neighbor's house, crash on the couch until the sons woke up, make breakfast, and spend the day biking, fishing, and playing basketball. Good times. I admit I was a little nervous of the house. I just assumed it was because I was the only person awake and it was still dark outside. That kind of uneasiness that happens when you're a teen home alone. Mm -hmm. No biggie. Then one morning, something happened. I went over as usual. The dad was rushing around looking for his keys, making sure he had his wallet. It's the usual show. All the things working dads do as they leave for work. I'd seen my dad do it, and years later would see my husband do it. Briefcase, lunchbox, keys, wallet, and he's off to work. (laughs) 
<laughs> I sat on the couch and switched on the TV. We didn't have cable at our house, so of course this was a perk. It was the 80s, and MTV hadn't gone to total <laughs> shit yet. Yes. I grabbed a drink and some chips and chilled. When I finally got sleepy, I grabbed a blanket and a pillow and settled onto the couch while watching TV. Oh, that sounds so good. I was awakened by the sound of something moving around in the loft that was above the living room. It was a very open area with hardwood floors and a wide staircase that led to the main hall. It sounded like a man up there. My first thought was that the dad had forgotten something and it had come back home. The TV had been turned off and the light in the loft was on. I could see the light on the stairs and wall. I could hear him moving about. He seemed upset, like he was distressed or desperate to find something. I tried to call out to him, but I had no voice. I couldn't move. I couldn't turn my head. Something was holding me down, something I couldn't see. The position I was laying in allowed me to see the man's shadow on the wall. It was like watching a movie, just with silhouettes. He was searching in boxes, upset and sobbing a bit. He became more and more agitated. Now he was throwing the boxes and cursing. This was definitely not the dad. I don't know who he was. I'm freaking out and all I can do is lay there and watch. I keep praying the kids don't wake up. I'm so afraid he will find us. Then he kind of just slumps down. He sits down on the stairs, sobbing with his head in his hands, total sadness, completely giving up. He then pulls out a gun and shoots Ooh. himself in the head. The shot is so loud. There is debris on the wall where I see his shadow slumped over. Oh, fuck. I wake up like I'm coming out of cold water, deep breaths, and I sit up. It's morning. The boys are watching TV and eating cereal, and everything is normal. I asked the boys if I was moving around or thrashing in my sleep, but they said no. I didn't tell them about the dream or about how I couldn't move or wake. It was just a bad dream, right? No need to scare the boys. We went about our day. With the dream in the back of my mind all day, I was now very scared of their house, not just nervous. I wouldn't sleep there anymore. Whatever had happened had felt like an attack. I was young and didn't know what I had experienced, and I didn't want to tell anyone. Summer moved on, and the boys went back to their mother's house for the school year. They would only be at their dad's on the weekends, so I was no longer needed. Cool. <laughs> Years passed. I grew up, met my husband, and we had our own children. We moved back to my small town with my very own family. Eventually, I would tell my husband about sometimes feeling like I'm being held down in my sleep. He told me to ask my doctor about it because it sounded like sleep paralysis. I did talk with my doctor who confirmed it. I was relieved that it wasn't paranormal. Over and done with. Or so I thought. We were celebrating my 25th birthday and Halloween. We'd had a bonfire in the backyard. Good food, good wine, good music. And when, when who should walk up? The two boys I used to babysit for. Mm -hmm. They are young men now. We were all sitting around the fire on Halloween night. And of course, the subject of ghost stories comes up. Everyone is taking turns telling their stories. Eventually, it gets around the circle to the eldest of the two boys that I babysat for. He says, we lived in a haunted house. I was confused. I hadn't seen the boys in years, and I wasn't really sure where they lived in all that time. I knew their dad had moved closer to his job, so he didn't have to commute. They were older now. Did they have their own place? I just had to ask. Really? Where was that? He looked at me funny and says, you know, the house where you used to babysit us. I'm a little stunned by this. Huh? He frowned and says, yeah, the house was haunted. Some guy committed suicide on the stairs. That was it. It was a big oh fuck moment for me. That is exactly what I was shown on the wall that night. A suicide. Yikes. 
Isn't that interesting? That's so interesting. If the, if they had never heard that story before and then had that moment and then mm-hmm. years later hear that from the boy. I mean, if I'm that person, it's like that's your moment of like, well, uh, definitely paranormal. Right. Not sleep paralysis. Nope. Or or can it be a combination of the two? Yeah, I guess there's it, no rule that it can't be both. Right? Is it sleep paralysis to show something? Like, was that spirit looking for some sort of recognition of what had happened or some sort of closure? Mm. Like, why would it choose? Why did she need to see that? Or he see that? I don't know. The author is... Uh, I don't know. Oh, they said husband. I, I don't know. Um, the author is yeah. anonymous. But yeah, it's like... Sorry, I just made the assumption that it was a woman because it said husband, and that's right, not fair, could, yeah, right? Sorry yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah, it could be you know, whoever, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they just don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, what? And so specific. Like, the yeah. author says, like, the the person who committed suicide sat down on the top of the stairs and committed suicide. And they were saying that when they were in that sleep paralysis moment, all they could see was the light on the wall and on the staircase. Like, they, they mm-hmm, call it mm-hmm. all out. That's nuts. That, yeah. That was, a, that was a good quick one. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Just enough to nice, get you. Nice little ending. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yikes. Good good stuff today. I know, man. Today was intense. Mm-hmm. Do you have some um, Annabelles you would like to thank? Or do you want me to thank mine uh, first? Oh, oh, I'm happy ours to go first, Dan. Okay. Thank okay. you. Yes, they are ours. Yeah. They yeah. are ours. The English language is so stupid sometimes. <laughs> 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 say that um i would like to thank the uh annabelles who continue to support the show and let us do what we do courtney carmen shauna negus aaron biddle aaron no last name sarah smith mahala amanda norton ali klein cynthia stanford angela knapp morgan whitehouse cody patrick spencer no last name given kenneth scott and hope no last name given Nice. I would like to thank the uh, following Annabelles. Um, Bridget Potter Sanchez. Uh, Bridget, can I put a little flair in your name just for a second? Because it makes me, I just like the Spanish language. Uh, Bridget Potter Sanchez. Potter Sanchez. Thing, That's how I did it. The thing is, is that her name is. I know, it's Potter Sanchez. Well, it's hyphenated. So oh, need... so the first part might not be Spanish. Dang it. Another life. I want to be, I want to be like a, mat- a matador. Okay. Mm-hmm. Will you be if my go back in time? Be my spicy I lover. Wear, I get to wear like a fancy outfit. Yeah. Well, maybe not. You know what? I'm gonna change that. I want to be um, a musician. I want to be. A, I want to play Spanish guitar because I just I mm. thought about I thought about the, the cool like people love them, but then I'm mm. like, yeah, they love them because they risk their lives with the bulls. I don't want that part. Okay. I just want. I just want to be. Uh, I want to be a handsome Spaniard. Okay. Are you also gonna be able to like move your hips like they do? Yep. Great. I can't. I'm in. I can't in this life. I'm in. But. <laughs> Um, that was just a little bit too much information. Uh, I want to thank uh, Josh Hunts, Hudson Pillar. Okay, I gave you so many hard names this week. Hudson this is going to be so fun. I have no idea where that name comes from. Uh, Kim Yeager, Neil Dauphiny, James Kane, Isaac Mueller, uh, Jose Pantoja, Ryan Friel, Tyler Rippert, uh, Brianna Kreese, Kirsten Bombard, Cheyenne Favre, Lane Albee, George Chal J.F., and Lena Lewiski. I almost said Lejewski, but it's J W E. Lena, that's a that's Lena. I have seen a lot of Polish names, but yours is that is that the correct spell? L I J W E S K I. It's a ski. Wait, spell it again. L I J. But then instead of E W W E. S-K-I. And I checked the spelling because... It's probably some Polish, like in the Polish alphabet, it probably like, I'm sure it makes a certain sound. It's probably Lewiski. 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 
About oh, the J nice. is silent. About the J is silent. And it, you said La, you said Lana? Lana. Could be Lana, could be Lana. Lana or Lana Lewesky. I bet it's Lewesky. I bet it's Lewesky. Lewesky sounds better, well, apologies if it is Lejewiski or something. But you never know with Polish. Lejewski. You did the most Polish thing ever. Can I rat you out for a second? Our our daughter was making fun of Lindsay for being Polish. And because she so just she, she just did Ancestry.com and she was really pumped Monroe up. Did. Monroe, Monroe did. did it. Really pumped up that she's Scottish for some reason. This big like Scottish ancestry component. She's so stoked about and, it. And, and then this other, you know, Irish and this other stuff. And then she was like teasing Lindsay for being like, you know, mostly Polish, like almost all Polish. Because I I was like, oh, I'm like, that's so cool. You're so excited. She's like, yeah. And I, I think she said, at least I'm not Polish. Yeah. Something about, yeah, making this joke, at least I'm not Polish. And then so then Lindsay goes to post on Instagram about like, <laughs> oh, Monroe posted like this thing about me being Polish. Everyone's in on the joke. And then she posted a picture that had nothing to Screen- do with the part. Well, it was a screenshot, and I didn't realize that it cropped out the part that it. I needed. Nope, sure didn't. It was the most Polish thing ever. So she did a picture <laughs> like, hey, check out this evidence of my stepdaughter making fun of me for being Polish. And then you look at the post, and it doesn't even mention anything about being Polish. That's a carryover from Time Suck. Dan <laughs> likes to riff on me over there. So if you don't uh, know that joke, sorry. And that's, uh, and that's all I got today. Okay. Well, I you have got some spoopy shout outs. I do, Dan, I do. Thank you for acknowledging that. Okay, this first shout-out, I am very excited about it. It has a little bit of information with it. Mm-hmm. So this shout-out goes to Debbie from your snot-nosed brats, Leroy, Dylan, Corey, and Abby. Congrats on your new degree, and good luck on your master's mom. We're so proud of you. This is so That's fucking awesome. cool. Their mom went back to school to be a social worker, and yeah. she's graduating at 51. Nice. And then going back for her master's. Good for her. Isn't that fucking awesome? Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, and then we have two sassy from your mom, Brandy. Happy 21st birthday to Annabelle from Brogan. Love you. To Brittany from Frankie, also love you. And to Michael from Ivy, Lily, Paisley, and Alyssa, happy 13th birthday. Nice. A young creeper peeper. Oh, happy birthday. And that is all for today. Thank you for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. And for emailing us for everything else at info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thanks to Logan Keith on social media and badmagicmerch.com merch design. Check out that summer wear store at badmagicproductions.com for customer service. Thanks to producer Sophie Evans for help with story curation, Joe Paisley producing and directing, Zach Cohen for custom soundbed creation, and Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails. Subscribe to Bad Magic Productions on YouTube if you want to watch the shows. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for more content at Scared to Death Podcast where we post the pictures associated with the episodes. And we have a private Facebook group, Creeps and Peepers, moderated by Liz Hernandez. Thank you, Liz. If you don't want to hear more ads, if you want monthly bonus episodes and more, check out our Patreon and become a Robert or an Annabelle. And enjoy your nightmares, creeps and peepers. Maybe something is on the other side. Hope you were scared to death. If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee. Through time and space, evil may pass through, but has no home here within, scared to death. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. 
Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.